All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to MoneyWise with Davidson Capital Management. Got your MoneyWise guys back inside the MoneyWise studio with me for this weekend show. I have my brother Jeff, Joe Rust, and I am your host, Kyle Davidson. For any new listeners to the MoneyWise program, Davidson Capital Management is a fee-only registered investment advisor. We're in our 33rd year of business, and with offices in San Antonio and Corpus Christi, we have your investment management needs covered throughout Central and South Texas. And if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to MoneyWise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can also leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So as we kick off every weekend's MoneyWise program, I turn it over to my brother, Jeff, to go into the numbers from Wall Street from last week. So, Jeff, take it away. Okay, in the week just passed, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 1,779 points or 5.7%. The S&P 500 last week was up about 148 points, or 4%, and the NASDAQ last week was up about 243 points, or 2.2%. Now, for the year-to-date, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is down 9.6%. The S&P 500 year-to-date is down 18.2%, and the NASDAQ year-to-date is down 29%. Boy, that Dow Jones has been on fire this month. Uh, up 14.4% for the month of October. Uh, if, if the month of October had ended on Friday, we still have one more trading day on Halloween. But if it had ended on Friday, it would be the best month for the Dow since 1976, I believe, uh, mm. which is – I was a young man back then. <laughs> yeah. wow. Very, very young man. <laughs> yeah. The, the dogs of the Dow are biting. Let's just say that. Yeah, remember the Dow is only 30 stocks. That's it. The S&P 500 is 500 stocks. The NASDAQ is more than 500 stocks. So with, with those 30 stocks, are doing exceptionally well uh, for the month of, of October, a month that is historically not the greatest uh, for the markets. It, it, it can, we've, had, we've definitely had mixed reviews in the month of October, but as we're getting to the end of October into November, December, that's when we start to get into seasonality, which a lot of listeners who listen to the financial entertainment press might have heard that term thrown around quite a bit, uh, the seasonality effect, Santa Claus rally. Uh, although well, I, do, I do harken back to the fourth quarter December of 2018, where we all got lumps of coal in our stockings for that uh, that Christmas. Yes, we did. But what is the what's the cover story be, below all this? Well, what's the reason for this surge that we've had here in the last couple of weeks? Because remember, it wasn't but just a few weeks ago that there was 
issues with currency and you know England and they were doing all this this stuff over there with all this turmoil and then we had Japan intervening in their currency markets we had rumors of i think uh, one of the banks in Switzerland was going to go under uh and then also heard there was another rumor floating about that there were uh liquidity issues and treasuries i mean there's all this gloom and doom that you know there was some sort of that there was going to be some kind of shoe to drop you know there was going to be some huge hedge fund there was going to be some kind of long-term capital management type event uh occur and we took the market we took the s&p 500 to the lows of the year just a few weeks ago what happened to all that well sometimes no news is good news I mean, if you look at it, there hasn't been a – we haven't had to deal with any of the things that you just talked about, Jeff, in the last week and a half or so. And then, of course, you go through earnings this week where you have your mega cap stocks, which would be the other big story. And still, earnings are mixed. Intel beats. You have fa- Bookface, as they all call it, or, or Facebook that missed. <laughs> Meta. You know, and then, yeah. Then, you, of course, you have Google, which wasn't phenomenal. And and Amazon, but more or less, earnings have been mixed. So maybe it wasn't as bad as everybody thought it was. Apple was well received. I think think what it was, Joe, it wasn't as bad as maybe some people, some analysts had anticipated. But, again, it's on a stock-by-stock basis. You know, what what really took Amazon down was their operating profits, you know, between zero and $4 billion for the fourth quarter. That's what really rattled everybody. Uh, Apple, again, had some mixed numbers. What I thought was interesting, though, about Apple's numbers is how they beat on the MacBooks. And then we know we heard from Tim Cook that they're having real problems getting enough supply for the iPhone 14 Pro, which has had above expectations as far as orders are concerned. But I do remember some of the chip companies just a few weeks back talking about the slowdown in personal computer sales. Well, really? Well, that's not according to Apple. Apple, they beat their number on on that side when it came to the MacBooks. But I think the one thing we did hear from all these mega caps is the slowdown in growth in the web services, the cloud, the cloud computing. Um And I think that's just the end effect of the slowing of the economy until we get on the other side of this Fed interest rate increases uh, and getting back to, you know, still kind of working out the hangover from the COVID pandemic, which is still going to be taking more time to get through. So it is on a company by company basis. I would say that the news was mixed, as you said, Joe, but I think right now we're in this point, we're at this part or point in the market where Bad news can be interpreted as good news. I got another another point. I know we just have a second. Well, how much is the impending election in midterms? Maybe people are trying to get out in front of it because if you do have a red wave, so to speak, that might give a little little bit of an upswing on the market. And maybe people are trying to get in before that. Well, that's true you know? because we know that gridlock historically, the market does better under you know in gridlock. And right now, with the left controlling congress and the white house there can you know there really isn't any gridlock i mean joe manchin and, and Kristen cinema were about the only two people that kind of were the sticks in the spokes when it came to washington and policy making so if we do have that red wave joe and even if we just take the house on the gop side at least that creates 
that it's going to create the the sticking point for things not to be able to get done, that gridlock. Uh, so gridlock can be good for the stock market. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning in this weekend's MoneyWise program, continuing to recap the happenings of Wall Street from last week with the Dow up 5.7%, S&P up 4%, and the NASDAQ up 2.2%. But before we went to commercial break... We were just talking about the just the mad tear that the Dow Jones Industrial Average has had for the month of October, being up through Friday's close, 14% for the month of October. And, and again, October uh, can be a real mixed bag on a year-over-year basis, whether it's an underperforming or outperforming month. But we are moving now into more of the seasonality aspects of November, December um, time frame. And we've got the midterm elections that are coming up and what we were talking about in the last segment is gridlock in Washington is a good thing. And so if we get a red wave in Congress, then we definitely know we've got gridlock until we get into the presidential election of 2024. Before I comment on the midterms, I w- want to say, add a little something to what Joe said in the previous segment about the news. Well, I talked about in the previous segment about what I thought, what the news to me was driving stocks down in the first couple of weeks of October, what's the one thing that we have not been hearing about at all in the last week, 10 days? The Fed. Fed. Why? Because the Fed has a muzzle on. They have a muzzle on by rule that they can't come out and say anything about anything prior to the next Fed meeting that occurs on Tuesday, November the 2nd. They're just muzzled. So there hasn't been any talk about was it going to be 75 basis points? It's going to be 50 basis point. What's December's number going to be? What's the dot plot? Are they going to change their uh, uh, plans for future federal uh, fed, fed funds rate increases in the coming weeks? Well, we can't. We're not going to hear about any of that until Tuesday. So the market doesn't have any of that news to trade on. All it has to trade on is all right. So the ECB came out this week. And they raised interest rates another three-quarters percent. They said they were going to keep raising rates. They're behind the United States in terms of raising rates. And I believe also the Bank of Canada came out, and they only did 50 basis points, which the market took Mm -hmm. as a cue that, well, maybe the Federal Reserve will do the same. Where have we heard this story before? Wait a second. Where Where have we heard this same story that the market was trading in advance of anticipation of the Federal Reserve saying something sweet and nice that was going to make everybody feel good about owning stocks again, and the market's going to go back to all-time highs in the next three months. No, we had that happen in June. 
June, pardon me, in the summer, July, we had this big run up only to have their, the markets dashed at Jackson Hole. At Jackson Hole. And we had, well, we we were down on the the S&P 500, we were down 900 points in about two months. And I believe it was the Bank of Australia back in the summertime were expecting to raise rates higher than they did. They came with a half of 1% and said, we can kind of stay on this slower pace of raising rates. And so the U.S. market took that as, okay, maybe the Federal Reserve can start following that path. So that was, I would say, one of the pieces of news from last week, Bank of Canada only raising 50 basis points. That was another kind of turning point for the market to move higher this past week. But the ECB obviously raising 75 basis points didn't throw any cold water on it. But, Jeff, you're absolutely right. The ECB, the European Central Bank, is so far behind the curve as far as raising rates. But as they raise rates, that can also potentially help strengthen their currency, making the U.S. dollar a little bit weaker, which means that Japan doesn't have to go and do any more intervention to prop up the yen versus the dollar, and things start to smooth out. As long as the Fed doesn't say, hey, we're going to increase the rate of, of, of interest rate increases and the dollar goes back uh, back to where it was a couple of weeks ago. I think we were trading like 113 to the, you know, we were, we were definitely above above parity. Above parity. I, think we're, I think we were at parity, near parity on Friday. But I, I think part of this run up is partly because of these hopes that there's going to be nice things said in the Fed meeting. Everyone's looking for the quote-unquote pivot. The other thing is, is maybe we just got overly pessimistic about all those things that I talked about previously. And so the market is is finding it, it is a new equilibrium somewhere in the middle. I know there's a lot of technical things that happened this week that are interesting. The S&P closing on Friday above its 50-day moving average, as did. But the Dow actually went above its 200-day line, if I'm not mistaken. It did. So, but the, NAS, you know, the NASDAQ is is the redheaded stepchild in all of this, and as, as to be expected in, in this kind of market environment. It has a long way to go getting back to either the 50- or 200-day line. Yes, guys, go well, ahead. Well, the housing, what the housing starts, ahead, I don't know if the housing sales or starts, they had, they had the number this week. That would be a Jeff question. We had, the, the we had all kinds of horrible. housing news. They were horrible. All the housing, they were horrible. All the housing numbers are, are not good. They're so what horrible. we're getting at is with, with the Fed raising rates, you are seeing some things that with from inflation from a housing standpoint that really start that, to come down. <laughs> that maybe make it more favorable to the market and maybe we're, like we said, we're closer to the seventh or eighth inning of this rate height increase. Well, so. it's it's back to Jeff's comment. It's the perversion of the market. Bad news is good for the market because with what we've seen in housing, because we've talked on past shows that the Fed was wanting to raise rates to break the housing market. Well, guess what? Congratulations, <laughs> guys and gals. You've done it. You know, we're now starting to see this come to fruition. And so I think some of the negative housing data from this past week was another catalyst because bad was good. Meaning, I mean, come November 2nd, the Fed's raising 75 basis points. I mean, you could take that to Vegas, you know, feel and saying that with all confidence. They're going to raise 75 basis points. What I think, what I feel is going to occur is they're going to recognize they're going to say that they've now see 
some of the effects taking place of all the past interest rate increases in the housing market, that things are cooling down. They're basically going to put everyone on notice, hey, we see we're doing our job and things are starting to come down. And I have a sneaking suspicion that the market could anticipate, or not, not anticipate, but the market is going to interpret that as a pivot, meaning that the next interest rate increase is going to be less because they're finally pointing out things that are starting to come down in value, that inflation is starting to moderate, even though the core PCE that came out on Friday was higher than it was the previous month, but it's still not back to the all-time highs that we saw in February. So I'm going to wholeheartedly disagree with your assertion that that bad news in housing is good news for stocks. I don't I don't agree with that at all. <laughs> I'm I saying it was a catalyst I, for this week. I, I'm saying it was a catalyst for this week. Why for would rise. bad news in housing be be good news for stocks? Be, because I, I it means I'll tell you, I'll explain it. Because it means that the Fed can start taking their foot off of the brake pedal and start to slow the pace or the rate of interest rate increases. So it's seventy five coming next week. Then maybe December is a half of one percent. Maybe it's a quarter, and that the Fed is going to point out in the in the press conference that they're starting to see the effects of everything they've done all year as far as raising rates, and that that's going to be part of that pivot. Because when I'm saying pivot, I'm not meaning stopping. I'm meaning slowing down the rate, the size of interest rate increases to then come to a stop which I think would occur most likely in the first quarter of next year. So then the stock market can reprice to the Fed fund rate. That's what I think is going to – that's my opinion of of what I think is going to happen if they point these obvious things out that we're seeing in the housing data. Because, Jeff, you said yourself the Fed wants to break the housing market. You're seeing the numbers. You're seeing the data. Would you say that they're starting to accomplish their goal? Yeah, but the Fed's mandate is is for price stability and full employment. It has nothing to do with housing. I I understand okay. that, but so, they use so that as an indicator you, but, for inflation. You know, the the bad news for housing is not good news for stocks, and it's not good news for home net worth either, since most people's net worth is tied up in their home, and if their home is going to start declining in value, I don't know what at what rate it's going to be declining in value. But if people are going to feel less wealthy, and if people feel less wealthy, they may decide to spend less. And if they spend less, then that has issues with, with, the, with the overall economy. Housing is about 15% of GDP. That's the construction of homes. That's the people employed. That's all the materials that go into it. You know, people buying furniture, you know, doing all the things to decorate it. That's a that's a nice chunk of GDP. And if that isn't doing well, it's eventually going to find its way into the rest of the economy. And that concerns me going forward. I see we're getting right around time, so I'm going to stop here and save it for the other side of the break. Okay, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to MoneyWise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from the Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at one 800 275 
888-382-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning into this weekend's Money Wise program, we got into a we're getting into a little bit of a debate concerning the housing market, the Fed decisions when it comes to interest rates. Jeff, I don't know if you wanted to pick up on the point at the bottom of the at the bottom of the hour. Um, well, the point but, is, I I don't think bad news for housing is necessarily good for stocks or good for the economy. It is one of the things that we talked about that the Fed. They're not going to come out and explicitly say this, but I've said this before that, that the Fed thought real estate was was too expensive. They thought stocks were too expensive. They thought bonds were too expensive. They thought employees were too expensive. They think food, gas, all these all these things are too expensive. And in order to get things down, to get the economy to slow down, to get prices to stop going up at the rate they've been going up, they've got to slow the economy. And the only tool they have is the bludgeon of interest rates. And we had we had mortgage rates reach 7%. The average <clears throat> mortgage rate in the U.S. this reach reached 7%. It's been 20 years since we've had 7% mortgage rates. So I will de- definitely grant you that the, the job is happening in housing. But I'm my what I expect is the the destruction, if you want to call that, and it may be a too aggressive of a word, that's happening in the housing market is going to find its way through the economy, just as all these interest rate increases with more to come also has to find its way through the economy. So despite the fact that the that the with the Dow being up fourteen percent month to date, in the best month since 1976 for the Dow, I'm a little less than convinced that the the low is in, especially given the fact that we still, we still have, we have a little bit more in earnings left, great, but I just don't think that the Fed is going to, if the Fed comes out and says exactly what you think they're going to say next week, Kyle, is this a classic buy the rumor and sell the news moment? We still have all kinds of tax selling that has to get done between now and the end of the year. Is this a classic sell the news moment? Because what are we going to have left for the rest of the year? We have a little bit of earnings. All we got is Fed speak. We got GDP. We got more employment numbers. Midterms. And we got the midterms. Let midterms. me talk about the midterms. Wait, I was going to. Okay, go ahead. Let me, okay. okay. Well, we'll get to the midterms in just a second. All right. So, <laughs> so we can all agree that the market has come down. We're in a bear market this year because of the Federal Reserve and their adjustments to interest rates to fight monetary inflation. Okay. So we can all, we can all agree with that. So everyone's repricing. The high PE stocks have come down the most as they're getting revalued because of higher interest rates. All right. We know that the Fed is trying, you know, there are two mandates, full employment and price stability. Okay. We know that they're wanting to break the housing market. We're starting to get data that they're breaking the housing market. Well, if they continue to push rates at the same pace, we're at 75 basis points every single Fed meeting, they will not only break it, they will pulverize it. And they do not want to do that. Now, for someone, yes, you're absolutely right, Jeff. Uh, most people's net worth is tied up in their home, but someone who's not looking to sell their home that is maybe worth $300,000 right now versus $400,000 maybe a year ago, 
is that person going to say, you know what, I'm not going to go out shopping this this today or this weekend because my home has gone down 100000 in value, even though I'm not selling it and I'm not doing any home equity line of credit, but because my home has been devalued by 100000 you know what, we can't go to the Sizzler tonight, honey. People don't <laughs> shop like that. People don't think like that. Is Sizzler so, still in business? No, I was guys, thinking about I should have said today. Applebee's. I should have said Applebee's. So all I'm saying is, you're right, Jeff. People's net worths are primarily tied up in their home. But because their home has been devalued, because everything the Fed is doing from an interest rate standpoint is not going to keep them from saying, you know what, we can't go to Applebee's tonight okay. because our home has been devalued by $50,000. So does if you're, so someone on, have a $300,000 house have a $200,000 or more in their 401k that's down 20%? Okay, fair enough, but they're making contributions to it, and if they're a younger worker, and even if they're still years away from retirement, they're dollar-cost averaging in each and every time. And there's I've read studies that people learned during the COVID pullback who panicked and got out and didn't get back in that they realize that they just need to be patient and take that longer-term view. And so some of the emotional aspects of investing, I think, have mitigated somewhat from the COVID pullback. And so they're weathering this bear market a little bit better. But again, honey, we can't go to Applebee's because I'm down 20% in my 401k this year, even though I'm still going to be working for another for another 10 or 15 years. The point is, is that the Fed is starting to get information that what they're doing is working and that it's going to take time. And it it's going to take time to work out inflation. But I think the Fed is going to recognize that they're starting to see some success of the things that they're wanting to bring down in value so they can slow the pace of their interest rate increases. That is the pivot. That is when the market starts to reprice with the Fed coming to the end of the line of their interest rate increases. That yeah. is my whole point. I, I don't – I'm not going to – you talked about going to Vegas. I'm not going to go to Vegas betting that's what the – that. Powell's going to say that next Tuesday. What about I, 75 I, basis points? Would you take that to Vegas? I, I, that part I would take to Vegas. But the second part, what you're talking about, I, I just it, – it's it's funny because Powell's gone from dovish to hawkish. <laughs> the you know, extreme. Overnight. And now all of a sudden he's going to back down and he's going to pivot and become dovish. Um, that, that's a credibility well, no, no, issue. No, I, I didn't say he's going – I think what yeah. he's going to say is going to be interpreted – as dovish, even though I agree with, we all agree, the Fed has not done raising rates it's, come, it's the, been, come Tuesday or you Wednesday. You can't handicap this market. It's almost impossible to handicap what the Fed's going to say. I'm it's not, just in this environment, but that's my I'm, opinion. I'm not it's saying tough. the Fed is stopping their interest rate increases come next week. I'm not saying they're stopping. I'm saying they're going to start slowing it down. And then we'll be stopping most likely, in my opinion, sometime the first quarter of next year. Jeff, I know you're out a little bit longer second quarter. Kind of worst-case scenario. We're like a month apart. Yeah. So so I'm not saying that they're stopping, but they're going to slow down because three-quarters of 1% increase next week gets them to 4%, a nice kind of round number for their quote-unquote kind of terminal rate. And we've got the core PCE at what, 512 5.15 that came out on Friday, but still the long-term average is 3.22. When are they going to come out and say that we've got to adjust this 2% mandate to get it to 3? Uh, it's not on Tuesday. No, I know. I'm I agree. Not no, it's I not agree. on Tuesday. It'll probably be sometime in 23. It'll if be I was a Batman. It, sometime next summer. 
Probably. Really? You think they would wait that long to adjust it to three? Why not? Why do they have to adjust it now? Well, I'm not saying right. I mean, second, do you but... think do you think that all the interest rate increases that that is that the Federal Reserve has put forth so far this year, all of it has made its way through the economy? No, no. Mm-mm. So if it hasn't made its all all that's made its way through the economy, is there more economic slowing to come? And I would have yes, to say yes. Along now, with that, the, the question for us as managers of money is, is all of that or most of that already figured into stock prices? And is this an area to start committing more money into stocks at this point? That's that's what we have to answer as managers of money. I would whether say we to, want, to whether nibble. we want to whether we want to commit more money into stocks, and then which stocks are those? We want, definitely want to be in stocks that we think have seen their worst days and are on and are on the upturn. Is that Intel? Is that Facebook? Nvidia, AKA Meta. Nvidia. Is it, is it Nvidia? Okay. Is it I mean, any number? Is 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 it any number of stocks? I think it's on a stock-by-stock basis. You know, Dad and I had a lengthy conversation this past week, and he made a a comment about something that Jim Cramer said. He said that maybe it's not as much about the indexing for the next 6, 8 to 12 months. Maybe it is getting back to the old-school stock picking to find the particular stocks that have been absolutely bludgeoned, that have – good, solid, low-price earning multiples over their five-year range that have great earnings, great cash flow. Their balance sheets are rock solid. They're the industry leaders in their group. Maybe it's getting back to the individual stock picking, which for a lot of our listeners, unfortunately, this is not what they're doing. They're just doing the indexing if they're working with a legacy distribution system. I mean, my goodness, we could go in an entire hour talking about the complacency in the legacy distribution system. Set it, forget it, put it in indexes have a nice life type situation. So maybe we are getting back to what we have been doing for the last 33 years of Davidson Capital Management is the old school, picking individual stocks, picking individual bonds, finding best of breed uh, investments, whether it's an exchange traded fund or a no load mutual fund, and then actively managing that mix and making those decisions when decisions need to be made. You know, these are the type of markets where complacency kills. You know, going back to Joe's original saying, know what you own, understand why you own it, and whatever you own, you could explain it to a fifth grader. You know, nothing exotic, nothing outside the norm in market conditions like this. Plain vanilla still works on Wall Street. It's the execution that's the key in the act of management. Well, let's take another commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at one 800 275 
888-382-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So in our last segment of the first hour of this weekend's MoneyWise program, Wanted to shift gears a little bit because I know, Jeff, you and I had this conversation this past week. And now that we're, again, seeing higher interest rates across the board, whether it's in treasuries, government agencies, corporate bonds, CDs, uh, I believe you had a question from a client of ours, or was it a prospective client that had a question that brought this to your attention? Well, actually, I was listening to the radio. Oh, it was a radio show you were listening right. to. And I was listening, I was listening to the radio, and I heard – um, someone talking about um, CD rates or and promoting um, some CDs that this particular organization was uh, selling. Well, there was a yield that was quoted that was in excess of 4%. I think it was in excess of 4.5% actually. And so when I hear the word CD, I think of certificate of deposit. I think of a bank. I think of FDIC insurance. Now, if you go online and you look at uh, CD rates at an FDIC-insured bank, like a Wells Fargo or a Frost Bank here in Corpus, you're not going to find 4.5% CD rates irregardless of whether it's one year, two year, three year, I think most of them only go up to about five year. There are no five year yield CD rates at an FDIC insured bank. And you wanna know why I know there aren't? Because a two year treasury is yielding less than four and a half percent. So how could a bank be offering a CD rate of, you know, there are no 4.5% government bond rates uh, that exist right now in the in the universe, if I'm not mistaken. Even going out 30 years, you can't get 4.5%. So when I heard a C, the word CD, the letter CD, and this yield number thrown out on a radio show, I started thinking to myself, these are not FDIC-insured instruments. And so I went on the website and I searched them out and discovered what they were. They're not FDIC-insured. They have all kinds of if, ands, and buts. They have all kinds of restrictions. They have liquidity restrictions. They have mar- – it's just not what you're, what the listener would be thinking in their mind when they heard the word CD. But apparently – they can use, they can go on and say a CD and make people, you know, in my opinion, they're, they're trying to make people think this is an FDIC-insured instrument. It is not. So be careful. What we're going to start seeing now, you know, we hear all the gold and all the silver commercials all day long on conservative talk radio. That's, that's I, heard, I, I was speaking to a client on Friday asking me about gold and silver. So I pulled up gold and silver. Guess what? They're down this year. Are they down as much as stocks? Uh, silver is down 15%. Gold was down like 8 something like that. So they're both down. 
So if you're really concerned about it, if you're one of these folks, it's just you're, you're shivering in fear that you're going to lose all your money in your portfolio, and I'm, and I'm being a little dramatic here, you could be in cash. You could buy an actual government bond and get some get some real yield but you're not making you're losing money in gold and silver this year gold and silver hasn't helped you remember all the all the talk about how bitcoin was a hedge against inflation are you kidding <laughs> wrong, me wrong wrong are you kidding me ladies B- and bitcoin talk about things that are hard to understand investment wise <laughs> down 57% for the year the meta which is tough to understand the metaverse, that's down 50%. Imagine if you had both those in your portfolio, that's all you had. You'd be down about eh, 63%. But go ahead, Jeff. So so by my <laughs> how to get that out. My warning to to everyone is is you're gonna start hearing from radio shows that tend to uh, cater to the fearful, the ones that run the ads for the equity index, the annuities, and all that other Salespeople, salespeople, not money managers. Don't be surprised to start hearing them touting yields on instruments that that sound too good to be true and maybe throw in some terminology that makes it sound like that it could be like uh, something that's got FDIC insurance on it when it really isn't. It's, It's to draw you in. It's all a ploy to draw you into the office to give you the sales pitch. But I can assure you there are no FDIC-insured CDs that are yielding in this environment today, October 29, 2022, that are yielding over 4.5%. They don't exist. Maybe they'll exist in the next couple of years, but when they do, we'll be getting sixes or more in uh, government instruments. Not to say exactly. that it's going to get that high, but when you hear something that sounds too good to be true in terms of a yield, you have to do what? Dig deeper. That's and what we've been saying that on this program for, what, 16 years now. Don't take things for face value. I remember a firm out of Houston about 15 years ago oh, no. called Stanford go. Financial, mm-hmm. and I believe – they were running a massive Ponzi scheme because the owner is now in federal prison, um, and they were selling offshore CDs, I believe, with yields they were pitching at around 9%. And, again, if it sounds too good to be true, most likely it is. If you get all the upside and none of the downside, which is the favorite sales pitch of equity indexed annuity slingers, uh, again, it's a out. It's it's a bold face lie. It's all sales tactics. They're not held to the fiduciary standard. They're not securities. They're insurance contracts. Avoid them like the plague. But again, it's years like this, like you said, Jeff, that bring out the silver tongue salespeople to be selling to investors' fears, and they have just the product to sell you to put a fire extinguisher on that fear. 
So if you run across something that sounds too good to be true and you want a second opinion, your Money Wise guys are always here and available. So you can give us a call in our office at 800-275-2162. And let's see if it passes our smell test because our 75-plus years of combined experience, I think we could smell it out pretty easily. Well, with that, we're coming up to the top of the hour break, so we'll take the break, go into the news. When we come back, we'll be diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program and continuing with investor education. So stay tuned, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after the news. All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We've got my father, John, my brother, Jeff, and I'm your host, Kyle Davidson. We are diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program. Now, if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday, you can reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll free at one 800 275 2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So for the second hour of this weekend's MoneyWise program, um, as we normally use the second hour to go into investor education, you know, there was a, a topic and a subject matter that uh, that I've wanted to to talk about for some time. And I've been thinking about it all week, and it, and it really talks about uh, investors' behavior and improving investors behavior and so doing some research and really where this spur you know really where I got the spark to want to look into this and research it is several weeks ago uh, Dalbar released a study and they release a study on an annual basis talking about investor behavior and their typical rates of return um, and and what their experience has been as managing money of their on their own and and from time to time when i meet with prospective clients and current clients we talk about investor psychology and how investor psychology can do a lot of damage to portfolios so in my research i actually ran across a presentation that was put together by the mutual fund family munder i want to give them the credit for for putting this presentation together which i thought was just fantastic presentation that i wanted to pass along to our listeners because it's got a lot of good food for thought but it also includes some of these dalbar statistics about investor psychology and the rates of return that individual investors have been achieving over a very long period of time, in fact, the 20-year time period, and how critical it is to have the connection with an investment professional to assist them, but also how to not allow humans, the, your human psyche become a roadblock to investing for your future. So looking at this presentation... You know, historic historic investment behavior really threatens the ability to accomplish objectives and achieve and achieve returns. The result is is that investors are not going to reach their goals, whether it be retirement, saving for higher education, what have you. Investment returns may be far more dependent on investment behavior than market performance. 
And so investors who hold their investments typically are going to earn a higher return over time than those who attempt to time the market. And there's an old saying that, that I use is it's about time in the market and not timing. So looking at emotional decisions, you know, these emotional decisions are often based on biases and not objective analysis. So potential investor problems that folks run into is identifying, first they're looking and trying to identify trends that don't exist in the marketplace. Uh, they also overweight information in the press. That brings up the example that we've talked about for many years of the client that came in to our office in 2008 and wanted us to liquidate his accounts because Glenn Beck told him that he needed to liquidate all of his investments. That's yep. a that's a particularly egregious example of someone overweighing information from someone in the press that has absolutely no investment experience whatsoever. And as a matter of fact, has a bias towards promoting a investment philosophy that enriches their advertisers, which in turn enriches the person that is delivering the message, i.e. all the gold ads that you hear on shows like Glenn Beck or uh, the, the, the conser really the conservative side of the aisle. I'm trying to think of some of those other guys, Glenn Beck, uh, Sean Hannity. Sean Hannity. You know, you listen to these shows, every one of them's got a gold ad on. I think Limbaugh, as at one time, may still, I haven't listened to Limbaugh in so long, run runs gold ads. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and again, we talk about on the show all the time about overweighting the information from the press because, again, this 24-hour news cycle we feel is doing a lot more damage to the investor psyche than if they just turned it off and tune it out a little bit more or if they do continue to listen to it, to take things with a little bit of a grain of salt and realize that the information is going to be coming to them with a certain bent to it, depending upon who's the person that's providing the information. So, you know, something else talking about emotional decisions and, and, and decisions based on bias and not objective analysis. You know, a lot of investors, I mean, investors giving greater weight to the equivalent amount of gains and losses. And really it comes down to, and, and I ask this question all the time of prospective clients or even current clients, is remembering losses more than gains. And that's one thing that, that in particular really holds investors back is is always having i mean losses from 2000 losses from 2008 still being so fresh in the front of their mind uh, that's holding them back from making decisions to get involved with the stock market you know something else from emotional decision standpoint is overestimating their own ability to manage their wealth and i know with a lot of the self-help books out there with a lot of the blogs and a lot of the websites i think there's a false sense of security that can be built into an investor's mindset saying, you know what, I can do this on my own and I can do better doing this part-time on my own. And I can tell you, you know, with 70-plus years of combined experience sitting in the studio, we can tell you that you cannot manage money part-time and be successful over the long term. It's just cannot happen. It will not happen because things move so much quicker in this day and age. And then finally, you know, this all can lead to repeatedly making the same mistakes when you have these biases and you don't take an objective analysis when it comes to investing. 
So let's talk about the identifying of trends or patterns where none exist. You know, one thing that in individual investors do all the time is chasing the hot dots or basically chasing the hot stock or chasing the hot investment du jour for the many years. Hot asset class. Hot asset class. For many years, it's been what? Precious metals. It's been all about gold. The late 90s was the internet silver. stocks. Uh, and then, but gold here, especially this century, uh, or really precious metals in general, had been one of the hottest areas. And then, you know, here uh, lately, in the last uh, three, four years, it's been social media. Uh, we've got the Amazons of the world, the Teslas of the world, mm-hmm. uh, th- that have been certainly being chased uh, by, by investors and bidding them up quite a bit. They've had co- they've had a, a pretty um, Good correction here in the last few months, which I think has contributed to the, the, this market uh, kind of so not experiencing the kind of gains that we thought that that should have here in the first four months of the year. And and before we go to the commercial break, another issue that investors run into is the gambler's fallacy, believing that one can predict when trends will reverse themselves and feeling that they're a, a good timer of knowing when to pull the trigger. So we're going to pause right there, take another commercial break. When we come back, we'll be continuing improving investment behavior, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday, you can reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the MoneyWise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So talking about improving investor behavior, going through a presentation, talking about investor psychology, before we went to commercial break, we were talking about a lot of issues that investors run into, in particular those that are that are managing their own assets. And one one big issue that investors run into is chasing the hot dots or basically chasing the stock du jour or the sector du jour. Uh, we also talked about the gambler's fallacy, believing that one can predict trends are going to – being able to identify and predict when trends are going to reverse themselves – uh, another issue that that individual investors run into is focusing on investments doing well, but ignoring those investments that are not doing well in their portfolio. And I've run into this quite often when I do portfolio reviews and analysis, when I, I talk to prospective clients that are very happy about being in a position that pays a 10, 12, 13% dividend yield, and they're completely honed and focused in on the fact that they're giving a 12 to 13% dividend yield, and they're not realizing that they've lost 50% or 75% of their original investment, of their principal, because the value of the stock has just plummeted, but they were dazzled by just the yield. So let's talk about uh, Dalbar. Now, Dalbar is a company that was gathering a lot of investor data uh, they've been doing this for years and years and years. They just came out with a report that has information through 2013. And so what Dalbar found in their survey is that clients are motivated by two main emotions, and we've talked about them on this show for 
years and years and years. The two emotions are fear and greed. They're not motivated by sound investment practice. Investment returns are typically increase when there is a disciplined behavior. And, I mean, that's one thing that we've preached on the Money Wise program going back to 2005. It's about having a very strict philosophy, as we do here at Davidson Capital Management, as a balanced manager. A, a disciplined behavior has many different that's aspects. Right. You know, one of those, and I think one of the most important parts of being disciplined, is especially in a retirement account, is participating in your 401K, Contributing as as much as you can, if you can contribute the maximum amount to your 401k, that obviously that's going to give you the the highest probability of reaching your investment goals in retirement. Contributing that money every single month and investing on a consistent basis, time and time again, and I've got dozens of examples of clients that are in identical investments over long periods of time and the ones that are contributing to their accounts on a monthly, bi-weekly basis are outperforming those clients that don't contribute anything at all with identical investments, identical allocations because it gives us, the the investment manager, the ability to, to buy, could always be in the market, Buying securities, maybe you know, like right now, we've had opportunities to buy some of these funds at lower prices because the markets have been down. Mm-hmm. And by dollar cost averaging all the time, and having the discipline to contrib- contributing to your retirement, and even if you're not contributing, if you if you've maxed out your 401k and you still have money that's left over to to put into some sort of retirement account. Get a, get a tax, get a, just a, a regular brokerage account, start contributing consistently to that one, too, and investing consistently in, in, that, in that type of account. Over the long period, it is going to pay tremendous dividends. That's right. So, as you said, Jeff, disciplined behavior could mean investment philosophy and strategy. It could mean paying yourself first and participating and saving for your nest egg. Now, the Dalbar study also... Uh, went and calculated the guest right ratio. And what the guest right ratio is is the percentage of time the average equity investor correctly guessed the direction of the market over a 20-year period ending December 31st of 2012 was 63%. So a little bit more than half. Now, granted, how do they gather this data? I have no idea. I'm not sure. I mean, again, they have some type of matrix and process they go through to gather this data. The bottom line is investors are driven to do the wrong thing by the psychological factors that overtake their rational decision making. And that's what they that's again what what Dalbar is finding in their studies. And so as we get further into this Dalbar study, we look at uh investors are driven to do the wrong thing by psychological factors that overtake rational decision making and so they've actually listed a number of psychological factors that every investor has when they're going through their decision-making process. And so this kind of going through all of these that are presented by Dalbar, the first one is we have loss aversion. And this is when an investor is expecting to find high returns with low risk. And I think that's any utopian dream of any investor is being able to get a high rate of return with little to no risk. Well, isn't this 
in kind of a, a selling or a attempted selling point for equity index the new oh brother did you hear that one right on the head you're absolutely right i mean they use this psych i mean again marketing firms are looking at psychological factors that drive investors decision making and they're putting it into their presentations and like you said this loss aversion all the upside none of the downside Every, throwing the guaranteed word right. out there is what it's we're psychologically wired to be attracted to those kinds of pitches and so this loss aversion causes the investor to search for investments that either don't exist and results in either taking no action or later discovering that the selected investment fails to meet their expectations a la equity indexed annuities and, and let's give an example recently you we we'd We've seen all sorts of equity index annuities over the years. Yes. And I can tell you that our typical experience for an investor that has held an equity index annuity, say, over at least a five-year time period, that they typically return about a third of what you would have received had you just put the money into an S&P 500 index fund. Oh, if you're just talking straight S and P, it's even it's even less than a third, Jeff. It's less than a third. I did a comparison on a most recent prospective client of our moderate allocation, our middle of the road, more conservative allocation model that we use with more retirees or pending retirees at Davidson Capital Management, and their returns were a third or worse compared to our returns in a balanced allocation. So if you're talking 100 percent stock, so, so what we mean by a third or worse. Is- like for five years, the the moderate allocation might have returned sixty five percent total return mm-hmm. over a five year period. Net of fees and expenses. Net of all fees, all expenses, and an, an equity indexed annuity might have returned twenty uh, percent or less. Yeah, total return. Total return. And the re and the difference between the two is well, that forty percent is going to the insurance company. So, you know, talking about these psychological factors, again, we talked about loss aversion. Another one is narrow framing, and that's when you make decisions without considering all the implications. The result is a quick decision-making with the consequences that facts are uncovered after inappropriate investments are made. So you make a quick decision, and then you uncover some more facts after the fact that you made that decision and you're like, uh-oh. This fits very well with that example I just used about that the client that came in and said, liquidate my portfolio because Glenn Beck said to. And then, what, one week later, two weeks later, Glenn Beck went on, on air and said, hey, I'm I, a schlub. I, I, I said this on my show here recently, but don't listen to me because I don't know anything about investments. So the, the inappropriate investment that was made was pulling the investments. That's that right. was the inappropriate investment, was taking everything out and putting it into cash. That's right. So here's another psychological factor that affects investors and their decision-making is anchoring. Now, anchoring is a very powerful communication method, but can mislead investors unless it is used with caution. So investors can be misled about the stability of an investment, if analogies are used to represent stability and analogies of growth can also lead to unrealistic beliefs and expectations again leads back to indexed annuities when I read this I just think of sales pitches that are more prevalent 
in the marketplace and even on different radio shows across the state. And again, using now this psychological effect of anchoring, you know, presenting and misleading investors with the stability and the potential performance of this and, product. And, and we've been mentioning equity index annuities, for, for example, but there are other examples such as private placement, REITs. That's right. You know, they're sold based on their yield, but mm-hmm. we kind of gloss over the fact that how illiquid they are and how the, the value of the security could go down and how uh, those, those, t- those aspects of the investment are not discussed. But the focus is all on the yield. That's right, and, and not and not you know can I get my money out if I need to liquidate? How fast can I get a hold of my money? And what is going to be the underlying value of my principal investment? Kind of going back to that, I'm getting a ten percent yield, but I've lost fifty percent of my principal investment. Well, how is that beneficial to your portfolio? Well, we're coming to the bottom of the hour, so we're going to take the break. When we come back, we'll be continuing improving investor behavior and we'll do that after this you're listening to money wise with davidson capital management we'll be back after the break welcome back you're listening to money wise with davidson capital management if you'd like to learn more about the money wise guys you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on monday you can reach us in our local corpus christi office at 906 zero zero seven zero or toll free at one eight hundred two seven five Two one six two, and if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So, continuing our presentation in the second hour of improving investor behavior, and and again going into um, psychological factors that Dalbar, who is a a financial industry information gathering company that does a lot of surveys. You know, I wanted to do something talking about the psychological factors and psychological effects that individual investors have uh, or, or how the psychological mindsets can, can hurt investors' portfolios over the long term. And so we were going through the different psychological factors that have this effect. We've talked about loss aversion and narrow framing and anchoring. But we talk about next is mental mental accounting, and that's when you take undue risk in one area and avoid rational risk in others. And I would say the best example, Jeff, in this area would be in precious metals. That would be that would be one area. I could I would also say that in the, to us in this market environment, taking risk in long maturity fixed income securities. That's right. And avoiding the the quote unquote risk that is inherent in, in investing in stocks to us and this may seem odd to some people listening to the show is we believe there's more risk in owning long maturity fixed income securities, whether they be municipal, government, corporate, than there is in owning the equivalent stocks of the same companies. We see more risk in owning a 30-year Exxon bond than we do maybe owning Exxon stock or AT&T or Verizon or hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other companies. So even though you're talking about gold in particular, because we've seen a lot of uh, many clients that that have had large positions in gold, but I could also say the same thing for cash. You know, just plain yeah. old straight cash. They're, the risk that they're take, uh, investors are taking by having large amounts of cash in their portfolios is they're not getting any growth whatsoever. 
So, so mental accounting can be as damaging to returns as any other psychological factor since investors can be misled into inappropriate investments. Uh, another psychological factor that can affect your portfolio. Now, this is interesting, diversification. Now, in diversification, you're obviously seeking to reduce risk, but simply using different sources. Now, it's extremely valuable investment strategy, but can also be misused to create a false sense of protection that results in potential return-killing action. And I think the best example of this, Dad, is you talk about Jim Cramer when people call up and say, am I diversified? Yes. And they have three or four stocks. Five. Yeah, five stocks saying, am I diversified? And Cramer's saying, well, you're in this industry, you're in that industry. Yeah, you're diversified. So you have your entire portfolio in five stocks. That is not, in our opinion, diversification. Something else where diversification saying, yeah, I'm diversified. What if you owned a bunch of different companies in the same industry? And I hate to quit picking on gold, but gold miners, for instance. I have reviewed a portfolio this year that had a ton of different gold miners and and different precious metal miners. And guess what? They feel that they're diversified, but they're concentrated in one industrial arena. And so that's, again, when we talk about diversification, we're talking stocks, bonds, large cap, mid cap, small cap, international bonds, domestic bonds, short maturity bonds, cash, cash. That's diversification. It's not five stocks of five different industrial companies and that's it. Or having 15 companies in one industrial sector, that's not diversification. So be very, very careful and understand what true diversification means. Uh, Another psychological factor, according to Dalbar, and this is a classic, hurting. Copying the behavior of others, even in the face of unfavorable outcomes. Investors that go along with the crowd, simply because there is a crowd, tend to avoid catastrophic errors, but seldom achieve above-average results. High returns are not achieved by herding. And, I mean, again, that herd mentality, I mean, it has been reported in so many different publications how... You know, again, long-term success. I mean, even thinking more of a, you know, being more of a contrarian as opposed to following the herd. Another psychological factor is regret. You know, treating errors of commission, which basically means decisions that you have made, you're treating them more seriously than errors of omission or a decision that you should have made. That basically means being extremely hard on yourself for deciding to buy this stock or this mutual fund as opposed to something else. And investors who defer, who fear decision-making lose their upside potential through inaction or reversal. Inaction can prevent losses caused by poor decisions but is unlikely to produce higher potential returns. So again, inaction. You don't want to have inaction. Another psychological effect, media response. Before you go into that, yeah. I think the inaction kind of ties in with, with folks overestimating their own ability to manage their, their wealth. That's right. Because they get too busy. Mm-hmm. And when you get too busy you, you, you and you run out of time or you're too tired, you've got other responsibilities then you can't you cannot take the you can't set aside enough time to really look at your portfolio understand what's going on and take action when action needs to be taken that's right 
And so here's another one that, again, goes along with the media. Media response. It's a tendency. It's another psychological effect. It's a tendency to react to news without reasonable examination. Going back to that Glenn Beck example, familiar media sources have become less reliable as they compete with newer, faster, and low-cost outlets. At the same time, new media outlets seldom have very thorough authentication. The question of reliability rises, raise, excuse me, raises the concern about reacting to news. So, again, that media response, and we've talked about that ad nauseum on this program. And then, finally, psychological factor that holds back and affects investors' portfolios over the long term is optimism. Now, Dad, I know we've used on this program, what's the bad four-letter word? Hope. Hope. The belief that good things happen to me and bad things happen to others. Optimistic investors hold on to investments after it becomes evident that losses are not likely to be recovered. Holding on to poor investments is yet another way psychological factors can reduce potential returns. Hope is a bad four-letter word. So with all this said, let's talk about the performance of the average equity investor. And this is a 20-year statistic, and this is through 12-31-2013. According to Dalbar, the average equity investor's return for 20 years annualized is 5.02%. Now, here's the tough pill to swallow. The S&P 500 index, same time period, up 9.22%, almost double what the individual average equity investor has realized in their portfolio for a 20-year time period because of the psychological factors that we just went over. I mean, I think that speaks volumes. I'd be curious, and I know you didn't do this, I'd be curious to know what a, a moderate allocation portfolio had done during that time period. I know it, it's going to be close to that. To I mean, when we're talking about the S&P 500, we're talking about a 100% stock portfolio, which is not something that we would recommend to any of our listeners to put 100% of their investments in stock. The optimum rate of return for us lies somewhere between these two numbers. but Because you know, 5% is very low. You know, most people plugged into their their investment projections for the future when they were when they're trying to figure out how much money they needed for retirement and and they and they used a particular rate of return in their investment portfolio. Uh, I don't think anybody was using five percent. Well, a twenty-year bond twenty years ago would have yielded more than five percent. Mm-hmm. Which means if you just bought a 20-year bond 20 years ago and held it for the 20 years, you would have done better than the average investor from the study. I, I think the average, in stock. Yeah, the average investor, by and large, I, I would say, sold sells out at the bottom and is slow to get back in again. Well, you know, I, I think, again, Jeff, when you when you allow your emotions to dictate your buys and sells, I mean, I think emotion... And along with these psychological factors that we went into, but emotion, your emotion, your emotional attachment to your assets and your nest egg, again, I, I think is what's causing so many investors to make these bad decisions. And one huge advantage of having 
a professional money management team like a Davidson Capital Management, an RIA that has discretionary control, is they help separate that emotion from your nest egg because you're relying on their expertise and their experience of being in the trenches of managing assets to make those decisions for you. You're you're separating your site those psychological factors from your assets because they're out of your control. And by taking those assets out of your control, that's eliminating is it's eliminating a lot more emotion. And it becomes a lot more difficult for you to try to pull the wrong trigger on making a decision in your portfolio, you know. And you know, again, an old saying that investors would have. I mean, here's something an investor would say to themselves: you know, a stock's historic high was fifty dollars, but then it declines rapidly. The next thought in an investor's mind is, well, once my stock gets back to fifty, I'll sell, and that is hope. Hope. Okay, well, we're going to take our last commercial break, so we're going to take the break, come back. We'll be wrapping up this and proving investor behavior. After we come back from break, you're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday, you can reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So we've been talking this whole hour about improving investor behavior. And as Dad said, the commercial break, we've been talking about all the bad things investors have been doing. And I promise you, we're getting ready to get to how to improve investor behavior. But before we get there, I want to talk about, again, the most common and potentially most damaging behavior that investors can have in their portfolio. Number one is an over-concentration in a particular position and it can lead to unwarranted risk. So again, owning too much gold, owning too much in one particular industrial sector. Too much fixed income. Too much fixed income. Too much cash. That's right. It's important to understand that the market does not generally reward those who take risk that can be diversified away. So the reason why, again, we maintain a balanced philosophy of Davidson Capital Management, we've had for the past quarter century and for the next quarter century, we'll continue to have that balanced allocation. Remember that the market is not going to reward those non-diversified huge risks that you take in concentrating in your portfolio in one particular area. And also you have to remember, investors are not adequately rewarded for the additional risk that they're assuming. You know, failure to diversify a portfolio, you know, if a portfolio is not diversified enough, the potential losses may be greater during market downfalls and macroeconomic driven events. So again, this is why it's key to have diversification, have a balanced allocation, and again, to have it actively managed. That's an absolute key. So... How do we correct the behavior? You know, how do investors correct the behavior? Well, first and foremost is having an asset allocation, an initial asset allocation model, and an ongoing asset allocation model, and an allocation model that is rebalanced. It's not set it and forget it, because we have seen that more times than we can count doing portfolio Set it and reviews. forget it is, is one of the, the most common asset allocation that is typically found with uh, a relationship that is more sales oriented than it is active management or meaning 
the investor has a relationship with a full service broker. Uh, they they're not in the business of managing portfolios. They they typically set an initial allocation and when, the, when the money's deposited, and they move on. When you buy an annuity, the initial asset allocation is set, and then that's it. You move on. So another way to correct investor behavior is setting and managing realistic expectations. If you're in a moderate allocation that's actively managed, you know don't don't expect to be seeing a fifteen to twenty percent annualized rate of return. That's just not realistic. I, I, you know today. When we when I see prospective clients, the issue is not having the fifteen percent plus the the double digit type return expectations like we saw in the late nineteen nineties. Mm-hmm. What it is is it's saying, "Oh, I want a ten percent return, but I don't want, but I only want twenty percent of my money in stocks." That's what we're seeing now. There, there, there's a there's a aversion for risk, but the 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 return. Uh, expectations are reasonable by and large, but what isn't reasonable is the mix of assets to achieve that return. And that's where we have to say, now, you have to understand, if you want an 8%, 9% return, you're going to have to have 70% of your money in stocks given the current level of interest rates. And that's when the investors say, well, wait a second, I don't want to have 70% of my money in stocks. And so you have to bring down those expectations based on how much risk you're willing to take. So another way investors can help improve their returns and their behavior is maintaining true diversification. Not diversifying in multiple companies in one industrial sector. It's having mid-cap asset classes, large-cap asset classes, small-cap asset classes, in a multitude of different industries. Foreign and domestic. Foreign and domestic. Fixed income and equity cash holdings, maintain that true diversification. Another great way to help improve returns, and Jeff, I know you said this earlier in the hour, dollar cost averaging into investments. If you have a 401k, if you have an IRA, if you have a taxable account, setting up monthly contributions, or if you're in a 401k, per pay period contributions. We know in 25 years of business, we've had clients that have been with us from the very beginning, and we can go back and look at the two different clients in the same allocation model, one client that's putting in money every month, another client that doesn't put another dollar in after their initial investment and the rates of return and the same allocation model is shocking we've seen dollar cost averaging work with our own eyes with our own client base it's somewhere it's somewhere between two and three percent per year compounded which doesn't sound like a lot but get out of cash that's a difference between a seven percent compounded return and a ten percent compounded return, and that adds up to serious money over the long period. Absolutely, another way to help improve your returns: staying in the market. Now, again, it's time in, not time ing. And if you have a proper allocation, you have an asset allocation model, you have true diversification in your dollar cost averaging. Even when we have very choppy waters. You know, again, what we're trying to convey is the all-in, all-out strategy is not going to work because you're never going to be able to time it perfectly either way. So if you have an active, actively managed, balanced allocation over the long term, you will be rewarded. And finally, and I, I, God, this point is so good. I'm glad it's the last point. 
investors need to stay focused on their goals that they have for their nest egg in their portfolio and not be focused on the markets and the day-to-day gyrations. And Stay focused on your long-term goals. I cannot say that any stronger or clearer. And that is so hard to do in an environment now where we are saturated in media. It is. Via it is. television and gazillion channels of TV the internet, whether it's on a computer sitting at our desk at work, a computer sitting on our desk at home, or our smartphones that are tied into CNN news feeds or whatever, or CNBC, CNBC news feeds, Market Watch. There's, you have to consume media uh, lightly. Well, go on a diet. <laughs> <laughs> the Atkins diet of. Uh, of uh, media consumption, too much of too much media can lead to being paralyzed making decisions. And we've learned from this Dalbar study of psychological effects on investing and what creates poor investment returns is the lack of being able to make a decision because you're being paralyzed by fear. So, Dad, I'm glad we kept you awake during this presentation, just barely, but it's something that I've been thinking about all week. I wanted to f- get some good, you know, meaty statistics and just information to pass along and the psychological effects and, and how they can affect both positively and negatively a portfolio. So we would like to thank everyone for listening to this weekend's Money Wise program. Again, if you'd like to give us a call on Monday, you can reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. For my father, John, my brother, Jeff, this is Kyle Davidson saying have a fantastic weekend to your financial health. We'll talk to you next week.